Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. When people hear the word doctrine, they often immediately think of the church and the things Christians are supposed to believe in order to rightfully consider themselves a true part of the family of God and go to heaven. However, when you look at scripture, both Old and New Testaments, with an eye to the kingdom of God being of utmost concern, then the subject of doctrine takes on a new perspective. Jesus, our King and Lord over any other King or Lord, directs us to focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or a synonym for righteousness, justice. And then he says all our needs, food, clothing, and shelter will be provided. Thus, we must look at the Bible not as an inspiring word, but as an inspired word, which directs us how we should think, speak, and act in all areas of our life, our lives of the family, the church, the civil government, etc. My guest today is Pastor Matt Trujella, author of the book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. And the subtitle is A Proper Response to Tyranny and a Repudiation of Unlimited Obedience to Civil Government. Matrahella is pastor of Mercy Seat Christian Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the founder of Missionaries to the Preborn. His research and teaching on the biblical duties of the lower magistrate served as the foundation for his book. Pastor Truhella and his wife Clara live in Wisconsin. They have 11 children, and the number of grandchildren keeps getting larger, so I won't even hazard a guess. Thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast, Matt. Really good to be here with you, Andrea. Thank you. All right. So how many grandchildren? We're at 30 now. We just had one born last week while we were out of state. Um, I was over speaking at the National Sheriff's Association's National Convention. They actually had me do the sermon for their prayer breakfast. And um, my daughter, who got married last October, and her husband were with me just to help me out. And she went into labor four weeks early and spent the night in the hospital and had a little baby girl born. So praise God. Well, congratulations. And apparently, um, never a dull moment in your family or extended family. Yes, lots of people. So I'm going to make an assumption here that many of my listeners would be surprised that there is any doctrine specifically referring to civil government. Many were educated in state schools. I think they probably, if they don't now, but prior to being aware that God's law word speaks to every area of life, would have considered civil laws in the neutral or, you know, naturally derived. So why do you suppose that rather than the idea of the Bible speaking to civil government being something new, it's really something old, but long forgotten? Well, it's because God's word speaks to every area of our life and every area of life, including matters of civil government. And we see the influence of 
Christianity throughout Western civilization from its inception. You can go to the book of Acts and see that the apostle Paul and the other disciples routinely interacted with the civil magistrates. In fact, on Paul's first missionary journey, his very first convert was a Roman magistrate. And he was literally at times chained to the least of magistrates while speaking to the biggest of magistrates in the final years of his life. And there was no difference after that. Um, the apologists came on the scene shortly after that, and they wrote their apologies to the emperor or to a Roman governor or some other Roman official, and then to the people, because based on Psalm 2 and other passages, they viewed um, Christ's kingdom not only for the individual regarding redemption, forgiveness of sin, right standing with God, but they also viewed Christ's kingdom as impacting the nations of men. So they brought the word of God to the governments of men, while at the same time bringing the word of God and his gospel to individuals. And that's extremely important for Christians to understand. The early missionaries were of the same mindset. Columba, you know, went to the Picts and the Scots, routinely taught them as they were converted to Christianity about their duties regarding civil government and how civil government influenced by the word of God and Christianity is markedly different than one that isn't. And you see that with Patrick going to the Irish. You see it with Boniface going to the Germanic peoples. They all talked about civil government matters with the civil authorities. They all approached the civil authorities first if not to win them to Christ, to at least get permission to preach the gospel and the word of God in their realms. So this was the thinking of Christianity. You followed up through the Reformation. You see the same thing. The Reformers viewed Christianity as impacting the civil realm. And what we have now in our day is actually a novelty. You know, the last 150 years, it's been well, yeah, we want a Christianity that has nothing to say about civil government matters. And as we can see, we're reaping the consequence because Christian men have abandoned the realm of civil government and have abandoned the magistrates. Can Let me man- stop you for a second, if I would. Define the word magistrate. We, we usually think politician. We think governor, legislator. But the magistrate is a term that applies to many. Explain it, if you would. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the magistrate is an old English term. It refers to anyone who possesses lawful public authority, whether by appointment or election. That's simply what a magistrate is. And we call it the doctrine of the lesser magistrate because it is a Christian doctrine, first formalized by Christian men in 1550 in Magdeburg, Germany, even though we see the doctrine in the Old Testament in the New Testament, throughout the history of Christianity. And we even see it in non-Jewish, non-Christian nations showing it's natural to man. It wasn't actually formalized as a doctrine until it was done so by the churchmen in Magdeburg, Germany in 1550. Okay, so I do want people to read your book. So I could have you go through your whole book, and you've already given a couple of references there. But it's important. I've been through your book twice now. And to be very honest with you, Matt, When it first came out, I was afraid to read it. And that may sound funny, 
but it just had the look of something that was going to challenge me and I had to be ready for the challenge. And I do think people, when they approach your book, need to be, need to have the mindset that says, someone's not going to be spoon feeding me things. I have to think about what the author is saying in terms of what the word of God says. And the very fact that you mentioned names, Patrick, Boniface, you talked about Paul being chained to a magistrate. I think it's important for people to realize that we have shortchanged the definition of liberty. We don't understand it because liberty has come to mean do whatever you want and nobody can tell you otherwise. And what we have is much more today of a soft and getting to be a harder tyranny because people don't know the history. They don't know that Christianity actually did change the world. They they don't. And the truth of the matter is um, Christianity, God's word shows the role function and limits of civil government. And that's massively important because if people don't understand what the role, the function or the limits of civil government is, then the civil authority is able to do whatever they want. And that's what we've had now because God's law and word has been thrown under the bus, not only by society, but by most of Christianity. The objective standard has been removed, whereby we know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And so the state is now able to make up law out of and policy and court opinion out of mere thin air, out of mere whim. And so evil is now called good. Good is called evil. And we're in a mess. When I wrote my book on the Doctrine of Lesser Magistrate, it was painful to keep it at. It's 120 pages, but I wanted it to be a popular work that got read. And I've been thanked by countless people. It's sold over 120,000 copies now. That it is to the point. And when people get it in their hands, it's something that they're like, even if they're not big readers, they will read it exactly. and consume it. And so I see the goodness of God in that. Um, and the doctrine is so needed. When I got the prototype of the book, when it was published 10 years ago, uh, prior to being published 10 years ago, I took it around for two months, Andrea. And um, everywhere I went, whether it's a cashier, somebody at the gym, wherever, I would have them read the back cover and tell me what you... What do you think of this? Would this be something you'd be interested in reading? Every single person, and there was well over a hundred, looked at me after reading the back cover and said, I would absolutely be interested in reading this. And about half of them then said, this sounds like something we need for America today. Mm-hmm. And then about half of those would say, after they said they'd read it, and it's so thin. <laughs> you know, so anyways, it was good to see that people were actually reading a book which pointed them to the word of God and to Christ. And it shows that you had the pulse of your contemporary audience in as much as these are people who've been used to television. They've been used to 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 120 minutes. Attention span has problems today and you add social media to that. So giving somebody something that is easily understood and digested without being easy. See, it isn't easy. It's just accessible. So I I really make that point because it's got to be for some people, Matt, and you tell me because you, you know, market tested it. 
did you get the reaction that said, how come I didn't know this? <laughs> oh, all the time. All the time. Yeah, people are astounded by it. And uh, I'm greatly encouraged by it. I, I wrote it in a way that I thought a Christian would love to read it and a non-Christian who is actually concerned about the state of their nation but doesn't know Christ would be wanting, would enjoy reading it. And clearly that's the case. And yeah. I've actually seen numerous people who, you know, were involved in civil government matters but didn't know Christ because of reading the book. It was their starting point, Andrea, where they actually came to know Christ. And that's massively, I am a churchman. I've been pastoring a church for over 35 years now. And to see men come to him uh, is massively encouraging. I speak all the time. I've spoken at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gatherings, purely political, Christian in nature, either one. And I regularly get at these meetings afterwards, people coming up to me, and this is essentially what they say. You know, I gave up on Christ and Christianity years ago. But after hearing you as a minister talk like you did this evening, I need to relook at all that. That's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. One of the biggest things we need in this nation is repentance and um, people being faithful to our Lord. And that brings up a very important point, and this will be reflective of the fact of how poorly people have been taught who bear the name Christian. You know, it's mm -hmm. been reduced to this personal interaction with Jesus Christ as if the, we don't have responsibility to our families, to the members of our church, to our communities, to our country. And so when you limit the relationship and the the doctrines of scripture to just your own personal salvation, you're actually being disobedient, aren't you? Yeah, well, it's the reduction of Christianity. Again, God's word speaks to every area of our life and every area of life. And what modern Christianity has done is reduced it all down to a sliver, you know, that it only has to do with personal salvation. And that has had a huge negative consequence on the nation. Um, and it's evident when you look at the culture today. So what I found over the years is when I talk to people about what God's word has to say about any given topic, if they have an interest in that, God uses that to bring an interest in him and in his son. And again, as I said a few minutes ago, I've seen countless people come to Christ because of that. Some people think that their literature only has value if it has a sinner's prayer attached to the end. Exactly. And that's absolutely not true. Yeah. Um, it has value because it's from the word of God, the thinking, the thoughts that you're bringing forward. And God uses that in the lives of men to get their interest in him and in his son. So I think we saw that recently with the whole COVID thing. Many medical people who probably would have labeled themselves as progressive or liberal or follow the science suddenly woke up to the fact that not only were they being lied to and encouraged to lie to others, but I've heard many physicians say, I never thought the support would come from the Christian church that very much used the doctrine of the lesser magistrate in saying, no, we will not close our churches. No, we will not force people to wear masks. If they want to wear a mask, fine, they can wear a mask, but we're not going to make them do it. 
And I think mm-hmm. it rocked the boat for some people in a good way. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the vast majority of the people in America went totally along with this fiction that they created, including almost all of Christianity and the churchmen. But there was a significant resistance to it, and it grew as the months went by. And if you were involved in those areas of offering up resistance to the tyranny that they were unleashing upon not only our nation, but around the world, you ended up finding yourself in contact with people who clearly did not know Christ, had no interest in him. And I saw, again, time and time again, a totally new appreciation or perspective regarding Christ and Christianity from those who, just like the guy you mentioned, was like, wow, I never expected these people to be involved in efforts. And what I found, too, is that most of the people I knew who are libertarian in their um, positions politically, they all you know, are supposed to be so big on personal freedom. Almost all of them went along with the tyrants. It was those who loved Christ and Christianity who far more stood against the evil and said, no, this is wrong. We're not going to tolerate it. I preached the first sermon against the whole thing nine days after Trump came out with the national emergency. People asked me, how did you call that so early? I said, well, number one, I have a biblical view of the nature of man, that he's wicked and in need of a savior. Secondly, I'm a student of the history of the governments of men. They're wicked. <laughs> and um, and three, I know many government officials in this day, and they're bad. Even the good ones are weak and phony. And so I was just like, I immediately smelled a rat. And I began to do research, read 52 hours worth of epidemiology, virology, um, by men who devoted their whole lives to this. This is prior. This is the first week everything's happening back in March of 2020. Um, this is before big tech had censored all these people. And right from the beginning, there were men who devoted their whole lives to these studies who were debunking the narrative that they were creating in the minds of men. And so um, that's how I preached against it so soon. And I preached numerous sermons, probably about 14 of them over the next two years, contending directly with the evil that was being proliferated through this fiction of regarding COVID. Yes. So you just gave a really important um, perspective there. If you know God's word and you know how it applies, then you can smell a rat. I know that probably my gut reaction wasn't as informed as yours. I didn't go, but it just didn't make sense to me. Right. And for a Mm -hmm. lot of people, and I think that this is how God works Inside everybody is a desire for truth of some sort. And when they start realizing that they're being fed lies, they go looking for truth. And so a lot of my categories changed. Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal Mm -hmm. doesn't mean as much to me now other than maybe instead of two, there are two sides of the same coin, which is not subjecting themselves and submitting themselves to the law of God. And Matt, I'd like your perspective on people who say, well, we can't force our view of law and justice on others. We have to persuade them. Um, Does God Mm -hmm. want us to persuade others that they should listen to him? Well, I believe we should try to persuade others 
to embrace the teachings of scripture and embrace Christ's teaching and the law of God. And so that's how I preach. Here's, here's the problem I have with much of Christianity is they think that they shouldn't talk about those things. And I try to tell them, no, we're his ambassadors. <laughs> so we bring his law, his word, his gospel to men and to the governments of men. And this has long been the standing of Christianity, unlike the current form of Christianity that we have in America. And so that's how I roll. You know, yesterday I was preaching, I'm preaching through Second Chronicles right now, and I was in chapter 28, and this prophet Obed comes up to Ahaz, who's a wicked king there in Judah, and he just tells him what he needs to hear. He doesn't couch it in terms that accommodates the filthy mores of the culture that Ahaz lived in and was prevalent there in Judah at the time. No, he just tells him what he needs to hear. You need to let these captives go. You're loaded with guilt before God, and this fierce wrath is upon you. <laughs> so, and that's speaking plainly to men and to the governments of men, and that's how Christianity should do it. We should proffer it directly to them. And what I've found, even with unbelievers that are in civil government, they have a respect for that. They have an honor for that. Here's the thing, and this is what I was getting at. A lot of people sure. think that every form of justice, every form of civil government has a right to the place of the table. But as Christians yeah. and as ambassadors, we represent our king. And Amen. as I used to tell my children, our God doesn't share well. He doesn't give to others what belongs to him. So yes. Obed could only have done what he did if he absolutely believed it as true and wasn't concerned about the consequences to him. Because when you tell a king something he doesn't want to hear, it's really easy to just decide that that's the last thing this person's ever going to say. So yes. what's the view of God's law that the Christian should have if he or she is going to be a true ambassador? Yeah, that the law of God is for, I'm talking about the moral law of God is for all men of all time. And the way churchmen have broken it down over the ages, and I agree with, is that when you look at the law of God in scripture, it has three parts to it. One is ceremonial. And of course, those things have been fulfilled in Christ. So yeah, we don't offer the blood of bulls and goats anymore. Those things are fulfilled in Christ. So we don't do that anymore. We don't offer the blood of bulls and goats anymore. It's Christ's blood that's efficacious for us through our faith in him. That's the first one. The second one is that there were civil laws made specific to the children of Israel in order to distinguish them as the people of God. These were laws that were incredibly opposite of the behavior and living of the pagan nations around them. There were not civil penalties attached to them for disobedience. And when we look at those laws, there's many laws within Western civilization where we find principles that we apply to our culture. Um, so there's much goodness in, in those laws for application in our day. And then the third part is the moral law of God, where there is, you know, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, where there is a civil penalty shall not commit adultery. And on down the line, there is a civil penalty for violating those laws. 
those laws are viewed as all being applicable to all men of all time, to all nations of all time. And when nations rebel against God and violate those laws, God judges them. I mean, even the nations that um, were there prior to the children of Israel being brought in, when you look at Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, God talks about, I judge them. You should not do what they did, or I'll do the same thing to you. Right. So this is important for people to understand that within Western civilization, for well over 1,500 years, the law of God, as found in Holy Scripture, was viewed as the objective standard by which we judge the governments of men, by which we know whether a law is just or unjust, whether it's good or evil, whether right. it's right or wrong. And that's massively important for people to understand. And so today, we think that we have to be good at debating things which the Word of God basically says you don't debate these things. We don't have to debate whether or not murder is correct. We know it's not. And just because mm -hmm. we're applying it to the preborn doesn't mean it suddenly becomes okay. Or if God calls or when God calls certain activities and practices abominations, we don't decide that, well, what people do in the privacy of their own home doesn't affect me at all. So right. when it when it comes right down to it, we have to assert, just like Obed did to that king, this is what's going to happen to you. And I'm just telling you, this is what ambassadors do. We represent mm -hmm. our king. We represent our governing authority. And you should know that when I speak, I'm speaking for him and I'm not adding or subtracting what he wants me to say. Amen. And when you look at where we're at now, like just a couple of weeks ago, Uganda passed a law regarding homosex, criminalizing it with proper penalties regarding such behavior. And what did we see from the Christian churchmen here in America? Oh, they sided with all those condemning it. With They sided with all the homosexuals and their surrogates to condemn what Uganda did. And that's where we're at regarding the law of God, the American church, and with American Christianity, they abhor it. And look, once you remove the law of God, whose law is then going to become preeminent? Because there is no neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. Someone's law and policy and worldview is going to reign. It's going to govern in nations. And so if you reject the law of God, whose law are you going to use? Who's, who's the objective standard then? You, me, society as a lar as a whole, uh, the Supreme Court. It's an insanity. And, you know, for people who think that, well, we should have no government at all. Cause I run into people like that with some regularity, both Christian and non-Christian. And I always point out to them that that's never going to work <laughs> because every time it's been tried down through the history of men, it has ended in complete debacle and misery and bloodshed because it's it's a denial of the nature of man that he's wicked in need of a savior and that god himself instituted civil governments amongst men exactly so when you made the point that we'll have a different governing authority it all boils down to what is your voice of authority who says so 
And why does it Mm -hmm. matter? And what happens if you don't do it? So we have current blasphemies today from our civil government. If you don't agree with climate change, if you don't agree with the government telling you how you should deal during a pandemic, where you can go, where you can't go, things like that. So the resistance, and we are supposed to resist tyranny because we're supposed to be lovers of liberty. When your title says the lesser magistrate, it sounds like, well, he's not important as the greater magistrate. But that's not what you mean by the lesser magistrate, is it? No, it is not. The lesser magistrate simply means that their jurisdiction is less, (laughs) you know, so their jurisdiction isn't as prominent. So if you have a sheriff, for example, his jurisdiction covers the county. And if he wants to stand in opposition to lawless behavior by the governor or by the federal government, he's a lesser authority in that his jurisdiction is less. His importance is it's huge because when the superior civil authority does evil, um, they count on the blithe compliance of lesser authorities in order to get their evil down in the fabric of society. And most lesser authorities allow that to happen and they hide behind the thing. Oh, I'm just doing what I'm told. But the truth is the inner position of the lesser authority in the face of evil is massively needed. So for example, you bring up the, you know, the pandemic and the majority of sheriffs and county officials across the country went along with it. We have 3,100 and some counties in America, but we were able to document over 500 acts of interposition by either sheriffs, county boards, or even by mayors or city councils who stood either in defiance of state tyranny or federal tyranny and interposed for the people who lived in their jurisdictions against what the wicked men were trying to impose. So it's extremely important And people understanding this doctrine, which, by the way, is simply this, that when the higher ranking civil authority makes unjust or immoral law, policy or court opinion, the God given right and duty of the lesser authority is not blithe compliance. Rather, it's what we call interposition. They're not to obey the evil of the lawless superior authority. And if necessary, they must actively resist their evil. That's the doctrine of lesser magistrate. In a nutshell, you know, it's it's natural to man. We have a quote from Emperor Trajan giving a sword to one of his subordinates. And he said, use this sword against my enemies if I give righteous commands. But if I give unrighteous commands, use it against me. So the doctrine is natural to man, but it's also found in the word of God, first and foremost. And the best treatise I've ever read on the doctrine of lesser magistrates is John Knox in 1558, eight years after the Magdeburg Confession was penned. He wrote his appellation to the nobles of Scotland. The nobles were the lesser magistrates of their day. And he cites over 70 passages of scripture within that document to show that the doctrine of lesser magistrate is sound in the word of God. So it's interesting to me when you when I hear you speak, is it any wonder that homeschooling and the possibility of knowing such information, which is where you're likely to get it, is something that the statists want to outlaw or restrict? And so sometimes you can see 
where the threats they believe, the significant threats, and somehow they must have intuitively known that in churches, churches that were informed that there is this doctrine of interposition is where they might get the most resistance. So liquor stores, casinos, abortion clinics were deemed essential, but churches non-essential. Well, non-essential to whom? To them. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when you study history, even, you know, recent history here in America, the British used to refer to Presbyterian churches as sedition shops because they knew that the word of God was going forth there and they didn't like it (laughs) because our theology is what helps us understand society, nature, our world around us. And theology is what gives us the grit to stand down tyrants because our fealty is to Christ first, not to the state, not to ourselves. It's to him. So when they make law or policy contrary to the law or word of God, we obey God rather than man. And they don't like that. And so, you know, so we used to have these things called election sermons here in America, and they were prevalent up until about the mid 1800s, a little after that. And they were commonly held at the state houses or the county houses Um, where a churchman would come in and instruct the magistrates and the people who gathered in the role, function, and limits of civil government, our duty as the people to civil government, their duty to the people, the duty of both to God. And these have all been lost. In fact, there's only one state that still does it, and that was only because the churchmen out there resurrected it, and that's Montana. And I was asked to speak and give the sermon in 2015 on the doctrine of the lesser magistrate there. So it was held right in the Capitol building, the rotunda of their Capitol building there in Helena. And it caused no small stir. Because again, what you're pointing out is the word of God does have something to say (laughs) to civil government matters. And when a churchman brings it forth, It astounds the people and it astounds the magistrates. And what I found again is they're thankful for it because of the fact that it brings order and cohesiveness. It creates the object of standards so men can more readily see when the governments of men are acting lawlessly and doing evil. So Chalcedon's founder, R.J. Rush Juni, if he ever had something that he said over and over and over again, when we think of government, we shouldn't just think civil government. We should think self-government, family government, church government, the government of businesses, associations, educational institutions, and that the last and probably the least powerful should be civil government because if all those other governments are operational, then the civil government, by definition, wouldn't have to be very large. Correct. No. And Rush Jenny was a great scholar and uh, influenced me as a young man. And yeah, our founders here in America pillared for us a true federalism. I'm not talking about the federal government. I'm talking about federalism. And in a federalism, all of the great governments of God matter. Self-government, family government church government, and civil government. And each has their own role, function, and limits. There's a little overlap with some of them between each other, but very distinguished in their role and function for the most part. So in a true federalism, you don't have like a statist hell, (laughs) which we live in now. 
you actually let family government do what it was meant by God to do, self-government do what it was meant by God to do, church government to do what it was meant by God to do. Now we have had the state invade self-government, and the state has invaded family government. And unfortunately, the churchmen have overwhelmingly played the whore and handed church government over to the state. And so we live in a statist hell at this point. But in a true federalism, when it comes to civil government, our founding fathers pillared multiple levels of government, multiple branches at each level. Why? Because they all held to a biblical view of the nature of man, that he's wicked and in need of a savior, namely Jesus Christ. So they didn't want power to reside in one man's hand. I mean, they were throwing off the monarch, right? Nor in a small group of men's hands, like an oligarchy, which SCOTUS has become in our culture now. No, they wanted multiple levels, multiple branches, so that if any one branch or branches began to play the tyrant, another branch or branches would check them, would interpose against the evil that they're doing. So they pillared the teachings of the doctrine of lesser magistrate right into the form of government that was established in America. And unfortunately, that's all been lost on Americans by design. They're not taught these things in school. And instead, what we have is the two political parties and the media trying to make the presidency into some emperorship, keep everybody focused on the presidential election, not realizing how important county and local government is and even state government is in a federalism. And so they keep everybody focused on the presidency. And if you ever take the time to read the U.S. Constitution, you see that the president has precious little power. It's like such little power. You're almost like, why would I even want to run for that office? But they made it into this thing because they want it to be top heavy from the top down. Extremely important that we stand against that. You mentioned SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, and you have people who rejoiced over the fact that the Supreme Court said, or they said that Supreme Court said abortion is wrong. That's not what the most recent decision said. It just said that we're going to send it back to a more local governing agency. So in truth, abortion has not ended in America. It's probably been lessened, but it hasn't ended. And so the big thing in terms of who you're going to vote for for president, who's going to put someone on the Supreme Court as though the Christian needs to hear from one of many justices, whether murder is okay, whether granting status to that which God calls an abomination is okay or not okay, that we have to realize that as individuals, self-governing individuals, sometimes we are that magistrate, correct? Yes, absolutely. This whole thing of judicial supremacy is a major problem. And, you know, judicial supremacy is why the preborn were slaughtered for 50 years. And all of the Republican politicians would say, yeah, I'm all against abortion, but then they would hide behind the skirt of the court. But the Supreme Court has ruled and all we can do is obey. That is an absolute lie. Again, our founders established a federalism. It was the duty of the lesser authorities to oppose the superior authorities or the state officials to oppose the federal officials. Even here in Wisconsin, we had um, our state back in the 1850s stood in defiance of the U.S. Supreme Court and the entire federal government over the Federal Fugitive Slave Act. 
It was a battle of jurisdictions. We don't have time to go into it all now, but it was a battle of jurisdictions which never was resolved, scholars say, because the Civil War made it moot. So, but it was our state defying the federal government. Yeah. And why? Because they were doing evil. That's why. Yeah. So the, the matter of judicial supremacy teaches three th- fictions. Number one, it teaches that the opinions issued by SCOTUS are the law of the land. And that's absolutely not true. I mean, Article 1, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution states that all lawmaking power resides in Congress, which consists of a House and a Senate. Okay, so who has all lawmaking power? Congress does. The Supreme Court does not make law. They do not write law. But the way they've accomplished that, Andrea, and Thomas Jefferson and others of the founders saw this early on, is they began to write within their opinions that they published in court cases, powers to the federal government and the federal judiciary not granted to them in the Constitution itself. So Jefferson and other of the founders uh, were at war with the federal judiciary up until till their deaths. In fact, there were 34 cases, pardon me, there were 24 cases in the first 35 years of our nation's founding where the Supreme Court wrote powers for the federal government not granted to them in the U.S. Constitution and impugned the sovereignty of the states. Um, the second part of the fiction of judicial supremacy is that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of all constitutional questions. And that is absolutely not true. There is no final arbiter. Um, they expected all the magistrates, including state officials, took an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution, Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. If someone impugned their oath to the Constitution, then they were to be opposed by the other authorities, regardless of whether they were in the state or in the federal government. They were to be opposed and resisted. There was no final arbiter. They wanted this tension between the various branches of government in order to stop evil from proliferating because they knew power, unchecked power given to any branch of government would lead to their corruption. And so over the last hundred years, what wicked men couldn't get through representative government, through Congress and whatnot, they've done through the judiciary, through raw judicial power. Our founders never expected that. And the third part of a judicial supremacy is that all the other branches of government have to do whatever the federal judiciary says. That is absolutely not true. It would be 1000% abhorrent to America's founders if they knew that. And I've been there, Andrea, when they've come out with decisions in Washington, D.C., and it is the most despicable thing to behold. There's hundreds of media outlet. There's hundreds and thousands of people, and they're all waiting for the oracle to speak, to tell them (laughs) what to believe and how to think. And this is that way because we've removed the objective standard, which is the law of God. Right. So tyranny flourishes when there's a weak citizenry. And to be a weak citizenry, you have to love security over responsibility. So 
the best kind of government for a lot of people is when the House and the Senate and the executive, they all agree with each other. Well, if they're all agreeing with each other, something must be wrong because that isn't the nature of man. And so if you understand your Bible, you will know, as you have mentioned here, that sin is at the root of evil and nobody is exempt from it. And the standard must be God's word. So in your yes, book, you, you talk about the power of the three boxes. I think that was probably among my favorite parts of the, the, the book. Explain the three boxes and the power it gives to the people. Sure. Yeah. The first is the ballot box. So if you have corrupt, wicked officials, you're able to vote them out. Of course, that's all in question now, <laughs> you know, whether, whether we even have that box anymore, right? The second box is the jury box. And the jury is important because they can interpose against evil. So juries are told by the judge, they're given a list of how to think about something. They're called jury instructions, but they don't tell them the most important part. And that's this. If a jury finds a law to be totally unjust or immoral or applied in an unjust or immoral way, they are able to find the defendant not guilty. We had that actually happen here about six years ago. We had a farmer who was, he was creating a crime wave because he was making raw milk available to people in his community. And so our government went after him. He was looking at several years in prison. He was looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. And even though he violated the law that was on the books regarding raw milk, the jury found him not guilty. So that's extremely important to know that the jury box acts as a check against tyranny by governments. But the people on the jury need to know what their authority is, and most of them don't. And it's an important box. And as tyranny increases and more and more people's own ox gets gored, so to speak, they'll begin to study and understand about these things and why our founders established them. It's because they came from out from underneath tyranny. They were fleeing tyranny. They understood the importance of the ballot box. They understood the importance of the jury box. And the third box is the cartridge box. Um, our founders wanted an armed citizenry. And rightly so. I mean, you look at like when the pandemic was going on, what they were doing to people in New Zealand, what they were doing to people in South Africa, Australia, Canada, where the right to bear arms is not like America. And look at how they were treated versus how we were treated. I believe first and foremost, that was because we possess arms. Yes. Our founders wanted us to possess arms for three reasons. They said, one, it was to put down unlawful insurrections to help put those down. And secondly, they wanted it to repel foreign invaders. We get invaded by a foreign government, help repel them. And third, they wanted the citizenry armed here in America to act as a check against the tyranny of our own government. And those things are still important to today. Those are timeless biblical principles. These things are found in scripture. And were applied to American life. And even when the pandemic took place here, we had our first five weeks into it, big gathering of 
about 5,000 people protesting it at our state house. And there was probably about 80 or 90 people who came out with firearms, totally kitted out, armed to the teeth. Many of the people were saying that, you know, we should tell them to leave. We don't want to be associated with them. The media will make us look bad. And I told all those people, you should actually thank God for every one of those people with their arms publicly displayed because these government officials need to be reminded that we are an armed citizenry. That's massively important. And they need to be reminded that men fought, bled, and died for the freedoms we possess in order to carry those arms. And I told them, you know, you should go over there and thank them, you know, and shake their hand for open carrying. I do that all the time, Andrea. Whenever I see someone open carrying, I always go out of my way to walk up to them and shake their hand and thank them because I know they get harassed enough Mm -hmm. by other people or law enforcement for doing that, even though they have the right to do it. So anyway, that's the third box is the cartridge box. And I think it's good for people to be aware of it, remember it, depending on if they ever knew it before. So before we continue, I just want to point out that a couple of weeks ago in my area, Silicon Valley, I got to see this flyer that said on July 15th, 2023, there's going to be an event, Jesus Christ, the gospel and America declaring our dependence on God. And much to my surprise, who's the featured speaker among five speakers, but Matt Trujella. So Matt Trujella is is coming to Silicon Valley on July 15th. Before we go, it has been my experience And it's often the case that those of us who have been forgiven much are motivated by their love of Christ to be stalwarts and embrace their covenantal relationship and stand for God's word. Well, only yesterday I read your short biography and I can say that I'm glad that rather than before God grabbed a hold of you, I'm glad I know you now (laughs) than before. Tell us a yes. little bit about why you're so adamant that God's word must be followed, embraced, and why you're willing to take potential hits for repeating it often and wherever you go. Well, you said it best, you know, from scripture, he is forgiven much, loves much. And yeah, I, I lived a rotten life. I was raised on the east side of Detroit where I grew up. I was a minority got involved in a gang as a young man, 14 years old. And I used to steal cars, burn down buildings, fight other gangs, rob people, all those things. And I finally was put into uh, Teen Challenge, which is a Christian rehab, drug rehab program. As part of a sentence, I was tried as an adult, even though I was 17, the severity of the crime, it was arson was the charge. I was um, tried as an adult in the first year of my sentence I had to spend in Teen Challenge. And that's where I came to know Christ. And he radically transformed my life. I saw no reason to live prior to that. I looked around and I knew there had to be more to life than what I saw with my eyes. I couldn't believe that we just do this for 60 or 70 years. Go to work, you know, get high each night. You know, this is assuming you made it to marriage. And... um And then, you know, you get two weeks off of vacation, you do that each year, and then finally you die. That's it. And when I came to know Christ, it was a radical 
transformation. And so I've shared my testimony thousands of times. I do a lot of street ministry at busy locations and at universities. And I've found, Andrea, over the years that regardless of how hostile the talk or situation may be, when I talk about what Christ did in my life, people get quiet. And I usually keep it to eight to 10 minutes, but they listen. Mm-hmm. It changes the changes the dynamic of the tone of the conversation dramatically. Because I always tell people this. The only verse that the wicked know is judge not lest you be judged. But while they're quoting that verse, they're judging you the whole time. They have you completely stereotyped. And as you know, there's bad stereotypes with, of Christianity within our culture made by Christians themselves. But more so, there's the university professors. They hate Christ. They hate Christianity. They demonize it. And so I always tell people, one of the biggest things you're doing is degoblinizing yourself when you're out at the university. And so you have to be patient. You have to be tenacious. You have to be just honest. Just be yourself. And also you need to love people because people can sense if you love them or not. Mm -hmm. I've seen time and time again where people two hours, three hours into our conversation put out their hand and say, that was the best defense of Christianity I've ever heard of in my life. So anyways, I think it's extremely important that we do it. I got a website called howjesuschangedmylife.com. I set that up five years ago. I wrote out my testimony, had to leave a lot out. It's already, I think, 25 pages long there. And um, But one of my sons kept pushing me to do that, and I finally did it. So if people, I, I thought that website would be taken, you know, howjesuschangedmylife.com. Mm-hmm. But no, no taking it. I got it for $2.99. So everywhere I go, I put out these little cards and uh, hand them to people or leave them like in the credit card slot at the gas pump or wherever and talk to people about the Lord and point them to him. And he did a great work in my life. And, you know, he's done a great work in all of our lives, whether they're as dramatic as some or not. And I think what people don't understand is that the word martyr in its original meaning meant someone who testifies, someone who gives testimony. Yes. It so happened that the people who gave testimony for Jesus Christ were killed. And so we've associated that with martyrdom. But that's what all of us have. Those of us who know the Lord, we have this personal testimony that speaks to a God that's in charge of all things, including us. So I never want to minimize the idea that personally we have been saved, but mm-hmm. the idea that we're saved for a purpose not just yes. to be free from torment, because sometimes, and you haven't mentioned it here, but I'm sure you're at the receiving end of a lot of hate, but that doesn't stop yes. you. No, absolutely not. And that's well said by you. Um, right. Christ saves us from something, namely our sin and his just wrath, but he also saves us for something to live our lives in service to him who died in our stead and to live faithful. Tim, to do those things which are dear to his heart, uh, extremely important for us to do. And I can't thank him enough because, as I said, I saw nothing to live for prior to knowing Christ. And I think a real testimony to the power of regeneration is that when I read it, I didn't know your background. And I'm like, really? Matruhella? That was Matruhella? So the fact that you're so transformed is a testimony 
to the power of God in the life of someone he has chosen. That's right. And I love that you pointed out that the word martyr didn't just mean someone who died for the faith. It was the fact that we we're all his witnesses, yes. whether he has death for us in faithfulness to him or not. And I recently preached a sermon on uh, the Scottish Covenanters. And that was one of the things I pointed out, what you said there about the martyr, you know, that it's all, we're witnesses. We're all his witnesses. And, and so we should be. And that is what the Great Commission is. We're supposed to be his witnesses wherever we go and Mm -hmm. not the get along or go along to get along version of Christianity, which isn't Christianity, but the Mm -hmm. bold proclamation that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's why I appreciate your work. And I doubly appreciate the fact that in a couple of weeks, I'll get to meet you in person, which I've never done before, because you're going to be in my backyard. (laughs) That is awesome. I look forward to it. I look forward to being out there. Yeah. Should be a good gathering. Yes. And just for people who aren't going to make it out to California, where can people find out where you're going to be um, appearing and ways to follow you and get more information about that, which you do? Sure. They could go to defytyrants.com and subscribe, and then they'll be on the email list so that they'll get emails, notifications of where I'll be. And we also put together little videos. They're one to five minutes long. Um, they can go to Rumble. We have a we have a YouTube channel too. Both are called Defy Tyrants, but YouTube keeps throwing us off. So anyway, we've been trying to build bigger at Rumble. So if you go to Rumble, our channels Defy Tyrants. See awesome little videos. Our latest one has to do with the shiny object. The shiny object being how the media and the two political groups keep everybody focused on the presidential campaign mm-hmm. to the neglect of all these other offices. So, yeah, that's how they can be in touch. Our church's website is mercyseat.net. My sermons are available at YouTube, which we've been thrown off there for months at a time, too, unfortunately. But channel there is Matt Chuella. So you just put Matt Chuella in. The sermons will come up, but we've been trying to build at Rumble because they don't throw us off. And uh, there we are, Mercy Seat, just Mercy Seat. And you'll find our channel there for the sermons. And as we started, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, a proper response to tyranny and a repudiation of unlimited obedience to civil government. It's available, I believe, in many forms. If nothing else, I recommend that that's one of the first things you do. Read this very accessible book and have your eyes opened and um, your heart stirred to do that which God calls you to do. So thank you, Matt. You too, Andrea. God bless you. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of us. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.